Specialty Story, session number 82. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome back to Specialty Stories. If this is not your first time here, welcome. If this is your first time here, before we get started, I want to remind you what Specialty Stories is all about. Our goal here is to show you, the medical student or pre-med student, or maybe even resident listening to this, looking at fellowships, to show you what is out there for you once you get through medical school. Too much focus is on the academic setting as you're going through medical school, and the majority of medicine is practiced outside of an academic setting, but you don't get exposed to that typically as a medical student. And so my goal here is to compare and contrast different settings. So an academic cardiologist versus a community cardiologist. What do those differences look like? What do those days look like? And so much more. So that's our goal here. And we continue on with that with a great discussion with Dr. Brittany Henderson, an endocrinologist who's been out of training now for five and a half years who has mostly been in an academic setting, but is now moving to a community setting, opening up her own private practice. And we talk all about why she's doing that, but the majority of our discussion is around the academic setting and what she has accomplished there. We start off the discussion with what initially drew Brittany into endocrinology. So I would say that probably took place in residency. In medical school, I focused on just general uh, medicine and going through all of my rotations. And I did do an elective rotation with an endocrinologist and I liked it a lot, but I was kind of trying to decide between that and geriatrics. And I think what I finally decided was that I liked the patient population and geriatrics a lot, but I didn't like the subject material as much. I didn't want to be doing all incontinence and you know that kind of thing. I liked endocrinology as well because of my background in chemistry and all of that kind of makes sense. The the pathophysiology behind hormones and how everything is regulated and all of the negative feedback loops really, you know, sparked my interest. And then in residency, during my second year of residency, I worked with an endocrinologist who was in the community and was on staff at the hospital. And I would go over to his office, you know, after call, um, after being on call night long and kind of try to get in some more exposure to endocrine and general endocrine and kind of see what that looked like on a daily basis. So I think that was really when I started realizing that that's what I wanted to do. You had a, a mentor in the field. And that seems so important for for students to actually get that exposure from somebody who's willing to to tell the student, yeah, come over after your shift, not a problem. I'll I'll show you around a lot more. Yeah, mentorship is everything. I think, you know, you can only get so much reading books and reading about how it is. Really kind of try to narrow in, narrow it down to a couple subspecialties and then really look for those mentors around you to try to see firsthand what it looks like in the real world. Yeah. What traits do you think lead to being a good endocrinologist? 
So I think an endocrinologist has to be willing to think, you know, big picture, but then also look into the little kind of intricacies of how these um, hormone systems work. For me, I think my chemistry background really helped knowing how different reactions worked and negative feedback, that all made sense to me. So I think if you think that way, endocrinologists all think that way. I also think there's a little bit of, you know, house kind of where (laughs) these are the interesting problems that patients come with. They come with Cushing's and they come with acromegaly and some of these diagnoses that you just read about in the book and it's kind of cool you're actually seeing that in real life. So yes, there's the bread and butter, diabetes, thyroid disease, but there are these really cool cases that I think if you have an inquisitive mind and you think through things and things make sense, that that would be somewhere where you would want to kind of look further into and see if that aligns with your career goals. Now, you've been mostly in the academic setting since all of your training and uh, we'll talk a little bit about why you're leaving the academic world. But what, what was it that drew you to academics to begin with? So when I decided that I wanted to be an endocrinologist, I started working on some papers and some presentations at some of these national meetings. And I think that's really important to be able to get into fellowship. So that's why I did it to begin with. So One easy way, I think, to do that, once you identify your mentor, is to kind of say, hey, do you have any cool endocrine cases that you want to write up? I would be more than willing to do that, you know, and and kind of make it more of an academic exercise. But if you do that, you're able to get publications, case reports even, and able to get presentations, poster presentations at some of these national meetings. And then you're able to put that on your application for fellowship. So in doing that and getting ready for fellowship and for my application, I really liked it. I really liked the thought process behind it. I liked writing these cases up. I liked some of the clinical studies, the retrospective studies that we were doing. And that kind of sparked my interest into, oh, well, maybe I should be doing an academic career that kind of seems to align with my my likes and interests. And you're soon moving over to the community, to the private practice world. What was the draw to go and leave academics and go into private practice for yourself? So I love academics. I think, you know, when I started as a fellow, I did a T32 training fellowship. So I was in the basic science lab and I was doing a lot of animal studies and cell work and finding some really interesting things, publishing in endocrinology and in thyroid. And I was on track to do like a KO8 award through the NIH. I actually did do one submission and was on track to do my follow-up submission and just had kind of an awakening that, yes, I liked this a lot, but I did not want to be in the the laboratory the rest of my career. And I didn't want to be struggling for grant money. Um, And that's really hard in endocrinology, especially, you know, I wanted to do more thyroid research. There is some money for thyroid cancer research, but not as much for things like autoimmune thyroid disease and hypothyroidism. That's kind of a clinical interest of mine. And so I decided as I joined faculty that I really wanted to focus more on clinical endocrinology. And 
during my my tenure as an academic endocrinologist, I ran, you know, the Fellows Thyroid Clinic and ran the thyroid tumor board um, at two major institutions. And I was the the medical director for the thyroid and endocrine neoplasia clinic. And so all of that was great. And I I loved it because it gave me time to do clinical work, but also to write papers and do some some, uh, research as well. But I'll say, you know, when you're kind of split between doing a lot of clinic and doing a, you know, wanting to do research, it's really, really difficult to do everything well and have enough hours in the day. So for me, it was kind of a decision that, okay, what do you like better, clinic or research? For me, it was clinic. And I decided that I wanted to go into my own practice because I wanted to build a thyroid center, which is what I'm doing. Most of my practice in the academic world focused on thyroid disease, although I did do some general endocrinology as well. But I wasn't able to do some of the other components of thyroid medicine that I wanted to do. For example, I want to run a thyroid-specific weight loss program and I wanted to write a book on thyroid disease and I wanted to do some integrative medicine approaches to my practice in addition to conventional approaches. And so that was my impetus for why I decided to transition from academics to my own practice in addition to the fact that I wanted to live in Charleston, South Carolina, which is where I'm, I'm starting my practice. So all of those together, I think, went into my decision um, of why I'm leaving academics and starting my own practice. Very cool. And that's ex- the exciting thing about medicine is once you have your, your degree and your training, you can kind of make whatever career you want. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you only have one life. So you really want to pick what you want to do, you know, base it on what you know right now. But if something comes up down the road and you decide like I did, well, I don't want to do animal work in a lab the rest of my career. Mm. Be confident enough to change your mind and go in a different direction. And that's fine. You know, for me, going from academics and really strong academics now to a clinical career, it's kind of like jumping off a cliff. And I'm just trusting, you know, that this is going to work out and it's going to be great. But I think that taking risks sometimes is a good thing. Yeah. What types of diseases and and pathologies are you treating as an endocrinologist? So my main bread and butter focusing on thyroid disease is mostly autoimmune thyroid disease, Hashimoto's, thyroiditis, Graves' disease. I do a lot of thyroid ultrasound and procedures in my clinic. So I see a lot of thyroid nodules. We do a lot of biopsies. I see a lot of thyroid cancer as well. So We do lymph node mapping, which is where I take the ultrasound and I look at the lateral neck to figure out if the thyroid cancer has metastasized to lymph nodes and help direct the surgeon as to what surgery to do. We are also starting some really cool minimally invasive procedures for patients with thyroid cysts who don't want to uh, undergo surgery and with patients who have thyroid cancer recurrence in lymph nodes. This is something called sclerotherapy or alcohol ablation therapy. And how it works is basically you take alcohol and you inject it into either the thyroid tumor within the lymph node or into the thyroid cyst, and it kills the blood supply to the thyroid cyst wall or to the tumor. 
And so the patient can avoid surgery, and we see about a 70 to 80% reduction in volume of both cysts and cancer lymph nodes, which is awesome. So we're doing that. I'm also going to integrate something called radiofrequency ablation, which we use for other things, for liver and for spine. But the FDA just recently approved a probe for thyroid nodules, which are solid thyroid nodules, so that we can, again, avoid surgery in patients who have thyroid nodules that are otherwise benign but are causing compressive symptoms or are cosmetically not very attractive. And so we can do this uh, minimally invasively and without surgery. So all of those things together, that's kind of what my practice focuses on. In academia, about, I would say, 90% of my practice was thyroid disease. And I also did some diabetes, um, endocrine neoplasia, so adrenal tumors, pituitary tumors, so the kind of the rare types of endocrine disorders. How many of the patients that you're seeing come to you already diagnosed with something and you're just treating them versus you actually figuring out and doing the diagnosing? I would say probably for thyroid disease, most patients know that they have an issue. Um, they found a thyroid nodule instantly by an MRI scan or a CT scan of the neck done after a motor vehicle accident. So they're coming for further evaluation. I do have some patients that come in with thyroid symptoms that want to be assessed and do not have a previous diagnosis, but I would say that's relatively rare. But I would say, you know, some of the more rare diseases like Cushing's disease and pheochromocytoma, some of our adrenal pathologies, you do sometimes start at square one with those patients. They come in for episodes or spells, and then you're going to be doing all of the, the blood work and the imaging to kind of work that up. So I would say for the more rare endocrine disorders, you're probably starting at square one. For thyroid and diabetes, they usually have a diagnosis by the time they get to you. Describe a typical day. So in academia, what my typical week looked like is I was in clinic about four half days a week. And the rest of the time I was following up on labs and calling patients back. A lot of times um, with some of the new EHR systems, you're going to be having something called like your in-basket where you're getting patient emails and emails from nurses. And so that takes a lot of time unless you have somebody dedicated to helping you with that. So a lot of my time when I wasn't in clinic was spent going through the in-basket. And then on Wednesdays, we usually had our academic day. So I would work on teaching fellows and residents and I would do research projects, talk to collaborators, write proposals, write papers. So that was my typical week in academics. And in academics, you have some options as to where your clinics are a lot of times. Um, so for example, on Tuesday mornings, I would have clinic over at the Diabetes and Endocrine Center, and I would see general endocrinology there. And then on Thursdays, I would be at the cancer center downtown, and I would be seeing all thyroid cancer, all endocrine neoplasia. And that was a really cool clinic because, you know, that's what my focus is. And then Fridays, I would be in a collaborative clinic with the ENT surgeons. So I would be seeing a lot of their parathyroid and their thyroid patients and doing ultrasound for them and helping them to map surgeries. And one of the cool things I think 
that you're able to do in an academic center is to do a multidisciplinary clinic. And I did that in both places that I was at, where you're able to kind of have clinic right alongside your surgeons or your neurosurgeons and look at scans together. And so I would go in, do the ultrasound, biopsy, a, a nodule, look under the microscope, have the pathologist there, give me a diagnosis. I can give the patient the diagnosis same day. The surgeon's in the, in the same clinic, so I could walk over, talk to the surgeon, say, hey, this person has a thyroid cancer. She has metastatic disease to the lateral neck. She's going to need a total thyroidectomy and a modified lateral neck dissection. Can you get her on the schedule? Yes, and the surgeon could go in and talk to the patient and talk about the surgery. So that is something in the academic setting that is really unique and really beneficial to patients. That, I think, was my biggest, you know, the biggest thing that I really liked about being in an academic center. What amount of procedures are you doing for somebody who wants to work with their hands and and do stuff with the patients? How procedure heavy is being an endocrinologist, especially a thyroid specialist? So I'll start with thyroid. Um, You know, I do ultrasounds all day, every day. So that is, I think, kind of cool. It's it's kind of my stethoscope, for example. A cardiologist uses a stethoscope. I use the ultrasound, and I'm able to actually look at the thyroid gland. That gives me a wealth of information. It tells me whether the thyroid has an autoimmune process going on, if it's hypervascular, if it has nodules, if it has cancer. So I think that is really a kind of a cool technique that you're able to do if you specialize in thyroid disease. And then biopsies and some of these other minimally invasive procedures we do on a weekly basis. I would say, you know, five to 10 a week is what I'm doing um, right now and it hopes to increase that with time. And then I would say for just endocrinologists in general, it's kind of procedure based. It's very technology based. Um, nowadays, with all of the new gadgets and everything in, in diabetes care, you're always looking at pumps and you're looking at continuous glucose monitors and all of the monitors are talking to your iPhone and you're looking at trends and you're looking at a bunch of data. So I think that, you know, where diabetes management is going, it's very technology driven. Eventually we're going to have a closed loop system where you really don't need to even make as many decisions because of uh, computer technologies. But I would say for diabetes care, it's really more technology. For thyroid care, it's more of procedure-oriented. And then for some of the more rare pituitary and adrenal tumors, that's more of you know an intellectual exercise and kind of playing a doctor detective kind of. Um, so I think that in endocrine, there are multiple subspecialties of endocrinology that can appeal to different personality types. What does call look like? And when you are on call, are there endocrine emergencies where you're going to have to come in from home? So I would say call for endocrinology is pretty minimal, if anything, which is an excellent perk to being an endocrinologist. There are very few endocrine emergencies. And even if there are endocrine emergencies, usually an endocrinologist is just a consultant. So the primary team is able to stabilize the patient and you're able to go in the next day to see the patient. I think in fellowship, probably I went in maybe once and it was for a patient who was in true thyroid storm. 
And that was because we needed to do plasmapheresis for that patient. But, you know, myxedema coma, thyroid storm, DKA, but a lot of, you know, DKA treatment nowadays is protocol driven and the hospitalist or the admitting physician can start management for that patient. And endocrinology basically comes in after they're out of DKA and gives recommendations on a home regimen kind of just the next day. So I would say um, that is a big pro to being an endocrinologist. You're not going to be on call a lot. And even if you are, you're not going to be called into the hospital. And DKA for somebody who's listening who doesn't know diabetic ketoacidosis. So yeah, so DKA is diabetic ketoacidosis. And we see that um, mostly in type 1 diabetes patients who have an underlying illness or who haven't taken their insulin we also see it sometimes in type 2 diabetes, something called flatbush diabetes, where we see a positive anion gap from ketones in the blood, and that accumulation of ketones causes acidosis, drop in pH, which causes a decrease in bicarb and alterations in sodium and potassium, and <laughs> really can make people sick to the point where sometimes they wind up in the ICU. But initial management's usually IV fluids and insulin potassium eventually as well. But most hospitals now have protocols because it's so common for patients to come in and DKA. So usually patients are just put on protocol and we're there at the end to help transition off the drip. It's one of those things as you're spouting off the acidosis and bicarb and gaps. And I'm like, oh, you, you really have to love that physiology if you want to be an endocrinologist. <laughs> oh, yeah. you have. I mean, you really... That's why I think I was drawn to it is my whole chemistry background and I like being in the lab and I like thinking through these things and where does the potassium go and yep. why do we have an anion gap and and I think for thyroid too I mean talking about the whole HPT axis the hypothalamus pituitary and thyroid axis and all the negative feedback that goes into it and diiodinases which are the enzymes that convert your T4 to T3 and what affects those and <laughs> so it's you know it's it's a lot of uh academic exercises you know so thinking through things and being inquisitive is a really good trait for an endocrinologist yeah this, you sound a lot like when i talk to nephrologists they they nerd out on that stuff too oh it's so fun <laughs> So call isn't terrible. What overall lifestyle-wise do you feel like you have enough time for life away from the hospital? So yes, I would say it is very good for having a work-life balance. Like I said before, you're really not going to be on call. And even if you are, you're not going to be called into the hospital very often. Really, you know, eight to five outpatient clinic work days if you're in an academic setting or if you're on hospital staff, you may have to go in and do some consults after your clinic, but usually they're pretty straightforward and there's a lot of time for rest and relaxation. What does the training path look like to become a thyroid specialist? Good question. So there's not a actual path for it, but I'll tell you my background and what I did. So Endocrinology typically is a two-year fellowship. I did a three-year fellowship, and there are programs that do that. Those are usually under the NIH T32 training fellowship and really reserved for people who want to stay in academics and do more of a research career. And at that time, that's what I thought I was doing. So what I did was 
when I graduated, joined faculty, I said, hey, this is an interest of mine. I want to do thyroid. And during during fellowship, I actually asked other fellows who were not interested in thyroid if I could have some of their biopsies, if I could do extra biopsies at the VA, if I could do extra ultrasounds. And in my case, I started ultrasounding and biopsying and residency with the endocrinologist that I was working with. So I got a lot of experience in my training and I was able to do something called ECNU certification, ECNU. And so what that is, it's an extra certification that is acknowledged by the AIUM, the Amer- I think it stands for American something in ultrasound medicine. But they acknowledge that as endocrine training for neck ultrasound. And as a fellow, you're supposed to have a certain amount of ultrasounds and biopsies And then you're supposed to complete the entire panel of ultrasounds and biopsies in your first year as an attending. And then you submit like a 350-page PowerPoint or documentation that you have done all of this, and they approve you for a 10-year ECNU certification. So um, having that, I was able to run the thyroid clinic. I I volunteered to run the endocrine tumor board and the thyroid tumor board to get more experience and to be able to lead discussion on it. I actually also during fellowship elected to go up and do a couple of weeks at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center with a thyroid specialist for thyroid cancer so that I could get some more advanced training that wasn't available at my fellowship. And that's possible to do kind of some away rotations during your fellowship, if your program director is amenable to that. And then when I when I moved over to my last academic position, I was I had enough experience to be the medical director for thyroid and endocrine neoplasia, and I was able to run some of these multidisciplinary clinics. So I kind of made my own path. There is a one-year fellowship. I know that they have one at MD Anderson. They may have one at Memorial Sloan Kettering now. But this would be after your endocrine fellowship and you apply for it, but it's on endocrine neoplasia and it focuses on chemotherapy prescription and administration and looking at side effects and looking at some of these more rare tumors like adrenal cortical carcinoma, thyroid cancer. And so that's available as well to people who want to really subspecialize in in endocrine neoplasia. Do you ever see... A world where we have an, a fellowship for thyroid in general? I would love to do that. I think yeah. that as endocrinologists, maybe we don't do the best job, especially with autoimmune thyroid disease patients. And uh, I actually just wrote a book about that. It's called What You Must Know About Hashimoto's Disease, and it's coming out you know, on the January 24th. Congrats. And thank you. Thank you. It talks about conventional medical approaches to thyroid disease, but also some of the integrative and complementary approaches to thyroid disease, how to do lifestyle changes, what diets to do, what vitamins to do. And we really haven't had a lot of good research in this area because of lack of funding. So I think, you know, that's, that's a really important thing that we need to get out there. We need to be able to train more endocrinologists on how to specialize in thyroid disease 
on how to become really efficient on fine needle aspiration biopsies, on how to do lymph node mapping, because a lot of fellowships don't specialize in that. And then the minimally invasive techniques that I talked about, really, those are not widely available. Alcohol ablation treatment, for example, is usually most most available at Mayo Clinic and at the Moffitt Cancer Center in Florida. There are some other radiology practices that do it, but not very many endocrinologists know how to do that. So, yes, I would love to see a, a formal training program for thyroid disorders. How competitive is it to match into endocrine? I would say probably not that competitive. We ne- we definitely need more endocrinologists. I would say some of the higher ranked endocrine programs are pretty competitive. But there are slots for endocrinology and endocrine fellowships throughout the country. So I'd say probably towards the bottom 50% as far as difficulty getting into match. Okay. I'm assuming a lot of that is just based on reimbursement amount. That is correct. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> if you're going into this, you're going to be going into this because you enjoy it, not because of the paycheck. Endocrinology is probably one of the lowest um, as far as reimbursement goes sometimes even less than internal medicine and hospitalists. So you really have to love what you do. And, you know, that kind of factored into my decision into going into private practice. And I'm very procedure oriented. So that helps as far Mm -hmm. as revenue goes. But you do want to think about that. So you focus on thyroid for the most part. For somebody who is going through their endocrine fellowship are there other areas of focus that, that somebody could get involved in? So, yes. Yeah. So um, if you are going through an endocrine fellowship, you are able to basically carve out your niche. Um, if you want to do diabetes, you can do that. If you want to do obesity and weight loss medicine, that's a really big and hot topic. Um, you're able to kind of work with the bariatrics people. And I actually think it's really important when you go into fellowship of any type, if you do endocrine or, or something else, to really branch out to other departments and kind of try to figure out what's my niche, like what is my major focus and what sets me apart from some of these other fellows and other endocrinologists out there. So yeah, so if you want to do obesity medicine, working with the weight loss program, working with the bariatrics people. If you want to do endocrine neoplasia, like, for example, if you want to do pituitary tumors, you would want to work with the neurosurgeons and maybe develop some clinical protocols or, you know, write up some cases with them. But I think that there is a take for everybody and and for every interest. I even had some fellows when I was an attending who wanted to focus on diabetes and pregnancy. That's, That's a focus. Um, now, some of the chemotherapy drugs and um, immunomodulating treatments, they can cause a lot of autoimmune diseases. So there are people who specialize in the side effects from chemotherapy medicines, the endocrine side effects. So I think, you know, that's probably easier to do if you're going to stay in academic endocrinology, because that's that's how you build your career. You find something that no one else is doing in your institution, and you build on that. If you're going into clinical practice, you can do that too. That's what I'm doing. I'm doing a thyroid-specific practice, but it's probably a little more rare. There are thyroid-specific practices throughout the country. There are diabetes-specific practices throughout the country, but 
to open a center and just do pituitary, that'd be a little more difficult, I think. So kind of think through, do I want to stay in academics? Do I want to go into private practice? And then either focus or become a general endocrinologist based on that. For the osteopathic student who may be listening to this, what sort of negative bias do you see against osteopaths in the endocrinology world? I would say in endocrinology, probably none. We have probably as many DOs as we have MDs, and they're not treated any differently. So I don't think that that's a bad thing. I don't think that that's biased against in any way. I actually think it's probably a good thing because of what I talked about with with my book and about trying to bridge that gap between some of the more traditional medicine and some of the complementary medicine. I think it's really important for autoimmune disease. So in that respect, I think DOs probably have a heads up compared to some of the MDs that are going into this. For the future internists and family practice docs, what do you wish they knew about what you do day in and day out to help treat your patients a little bit better? I think that I wish that they knew that we do, well, I do, all of my own thyroid ultrasound and assessment because a lot of times what will happen is patient will have a scan done for another reason and they'll find a thyroid nodule and then internists or family practice doctors will send them to radiology or to ENT for assessment. Well, radiology will do the ultrasound and then then it'll come back to the primary doctor and they have to decide what to do with it. Whereas if they can just send them to an endocrinologist that does it all, I can do the ultrasound. I can figure out if we need to biopsy it. We can do the biopsy same day and I can follow it long term as well. Same thing for surgeons, you know, sending a person with a thyroid nodule to, directly to an ENT doctor or to a surgeon a lot of times they'll go to surgery or, you know, they'll get an FNA. If you send it to an endocrinologist who specializes in thyroid disease, we're able to assess it, figure out if they actually need an intervention or if it's benign, because 95% of the time thyroid nodules are benign and they don't need intervention and they don't need surgery. What other specialties do you work the closest with? I personally work the closest with general surgeons that do thyroidectomy, ENT doctors that do thyroidectomy. Oncology, I do treat some thyroid cancers that are widely metastatic, and we need to put patients on things like tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So I do work with oncologists. And then I would say nuclear medicine doctors and pathologists. And the pathologists are for my biopsy cytology. We do things like molecular testing um, for some of these thyroid nodules that they help us with. And then nuclear medicine for things like radioactive iodine for Graves' disease or um, toxic multinodular goiter. They also help us with our thyroid cancer patients and treatment of thyroid cancer after total thyroidectomy. So those are the subspecialties that we work most closely with. And I would say it's good to know who you're going to be working with. It's also good to know who your patient population is going to be. So as a doctor who specializes in, in thyroid, most of my patients are women, and most of my patients have an average age of about 41 years old. They're otherwise healthy. They're not used to being sick. And so I like that because I'm a woman, and I'm used to being healthy too. So I think we can relate in that respect. If I were to go into diabetes, for example, I will have kind of a dichotomy of patients. I would have some younger patients who have type 1 diabetes, and I'd have a lot of 
you know, type 2 diabetes, patients who are overweight, they may not be adherent with diet, they may not be adherent with your recommendations for treatment. Um, so you kind of want to think about, okay, who am I going to be working with as a referral source? But also, what are my patients going to look like? Are there any special opportunities outside of clinical medicine for endocrine and for thyroid? I would say, yeah, I mean, anytime that you go into medicine, there are opportunities for pharmaceutical development, for things like molecular testing. But I would say that those positions are pretty rare. And usually you have to build up your reputation as an academic endocrinologist before you would be able to enter one of those. So I would say most likely you're going to be going into clinical endocrinology as an endocrinologist, unless you build a reputation. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into endocrine? Um, I think I was pretty well prepared for this because, like I said, I started in residency and I really tried to get into the clinic and actually see what this was like every day. I don't think I've had a lot of surprises, honestly. What do you like the most about being a thyroid specialist? I think the most, the best thing about being a thyroid specialist is my patient population. I love helping other women. I love treating disease where people come in and they're in tears and their entire life has been turned upside down because of thyroid symptoms. And I like being able to actually put them on the right regimen. And a couple weeks to months later, they're feeling back to normal. It's just very rewarding. Same thing with thyroid cancer. If you find thyroid cancer, if you find metastatic disease to lymph nodes, you're able to usually cure a lot of those with surgery. Most patients with papillary thyroid cancer, for example, have a really good long-term outcome and, and five and 10-year survival is about 90%, 99%. So being able to treat a cancer that is most of the time curable is, I think, really rewarding as well. What do you like the least? The follow-up. There's a lot of labs in endocrinology. So you're going to be doing labs on top of labs, and you're going to be having to follow up on that. For my thyroid patients, for example, I have to do thyroid labs every six to eight weeks mm. to make sure that they're on the right dose. And then when they get on the right dose, we do them you know, every six months or every 12 months. But as you're dose titrating, you're, you're on top of it. You're going to be having to look at these labs Frequently, if you're doing diabetes, you're looking at blood sugar logs all the time. So there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes as an endocrinologist. Do you see any major changes coming to the field of, let's talk about thyroid specifically, that, that you think a student needs to be aware of? Um, I think that the major changes to the field would be these more minimally invasive techniques. I think that they're going to be more widely used um, throughout the United States. So I think that is a benefit for endocrinologists that are doing that because that's more procedure oriented if that's what you like. And you're going to be able to save people from undergoing unnecessary surgeries. That's the biggest kind of draw and the biggest new technique that I foresee coming in endocrine. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a thyroid specialist? Absolutely. I love it. I love <laughs> it. It's great. And I think it, basically just doing it in residency and 
going after call, you know, after I've been on call all night long, I'm exhausted. I need to go sleep. But really saying like, this is going to be my career. It's going to be the rest of my life. I really need to know if this is what I want to do. And I think that early exposure really helped to solidify the fact that I wanted to do this for the rest of my life. And this was the career path that I wanted to choose. And I'm so happy. I love what I do. Any last words of wisdom for the student who is out there listening to this going, that sounds really interesting. I think I want to get involved. Yeah, you should. I think the first step for me would be to find an endocrinologist that specializes in thyroid disease. Not all of them do. And work with them and look at these procedures and see how they talk to patients and really just try to get your feet wet early on to try to see if that's what you really want to do. All right. So there you have it again, Dr. Brittany Henderson, endocrinologist, a thyroid specialist who just opened the Charleston Thyroid Center. So if you're in the area, go say hello to her. Maybe you can shadow her as well. If you have a specialty that you really want to cover that we haven't covered before, then shoot me an email, ryan at medicalschoolhq.net, and we'll try to add it to our list. Next week, we have a great discussion with a community-based pediatric cardiologist. Have a great week. We'll see you next time. 